0: contents of this first episode relate to episode one of Quiz, and will also reveal some of the hidden facts and behind-the-scenes tales of what it was like to make this drama.
1: I, I think I'm going to have to, um,
2: oh dear, yeah, I'm going to have to phone a friend. It's all right, that's what the uh, yeah. lifelines are there for. Uh, okay, who are we going to call, Major?
0: Hi, I'm Alice Pierce, and I'm the producer of Quiz.
2: Uh, hi, my name is James Graham, and I'm the writer on Quiz. Hi, I'm... Dan Winch, and I'm one of the executive producers on Quiz.
0: Hard to know whether to say of or on there. I know, anyone else struggle with that? I know. Struggle? Struggle. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: know. <laughs> It'll get easier from here.
0: <laughs> Whew, hard bit over.
1: <laughs> it's
3: not a game show, it's a quiz. That's the joy of it. People love a good pub quiz, a uniquely British invention, combining our two greatest loves, drinking and being right.
2: The quiz, uh, the television drama, is about the pop cultural phenomenon that was uh, the game show Who Wants to Be uh, a Millionaire? Uh, which was at the time the most popular game show on earth. And it tells uh, basically the extraordinary story of an ordinary couple, uh, Major Charles Ingram and his wife Diana, and their alleged attempt to break into the game show and steal a million pounds uh, through an intricate series of coughing by the third accomplice, Tequan Wittig, in the audience, who was alleged to have coughed on the right answers to help this man who couldn't possibly know the answers get to a million pounds. And they were caught, and there was a huge trial which received national and international attention, and they were given their verdict, and that was assumed to be, uh, to quote a famous Millionaire trope that was assumed to be the final answer on the subject. But actually, in recent years, um, new information and new questions have come to light. So, Quiz the Play uh, was staged and produced in 2017, and Quiz the Television Drama was produced and filmed in 2019. And we're coming to you in the spring of 2020 as Quiz goes out on television screens. But we should say, actually, that we are uh, reunited together to remember this uh, event and this project, but given what is happening in the world and the lockdown that is currently happening, we are responsibly socially distancing and are actually speaking to each other from our respective homes.
1: All right, one of my sub strategies is to take my time and um, list all the all the uh, options. So, Adnan Kasahagi, Ronald Reagan.
2: Rupert Murdoch. Aristotle Onassis. <coughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, we could never have predicted uh, when we began making this show that uh, coughing would become such a uh, an anxiety-inducing uh, theme. And, but, I mean, to be honest, I think we're relatively relaxed I, I, the nature of the show the tone of the show is something that we hope is very very light and very entertaining and the fact that you know the sheer coincidence that um, the the method in which these people were alleged to have been cheating uh, is through a series of coughs, uh, I think is almost incidental to the story. And in a strange kind of way, one of the things I think is almost most relevant in the past few weeks is essentially our show is about event television in the age of sort of golden age linear TV, where the majority of the country would gravitate to the same channels and the same shows and the same sources of information uh, time and time again. And in a weird kind of way, I think that's become more relevant in this time of lockdown.
0: Completely, yeah. I think I've certainly felt in this time of self-isolation, I felt connected to my community more than ever. So I hope that, as James says, people will find a bit of escapism, a bit of fun and comfort as well in our story.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking back to what I knew about this story uh, 15 years ago, I thought it was all centred around the, the main protagonist of, of Charles Ingram, and we've all got a very vivid image of, of him sitting in that chair with his starched shirt and, and how he behaved. Uh, and then we may remember, of course, that there was the, uh, his wife, Diana, and the alleged accomplice, Tech Quinn Whittick, as well. I don't think anybody really knew that Charles wasn't even the first member of his family to appear on that show, both his wife and his brother-in-law appearing first. Uh, and he was, in a way, What's what's exciting to discover is that he... He didn't even really like who wants to be a millionaire. And
1: you were never tempted to tread no, the board yourself? No, no, oh
2: God, no. No, military life's much, much um, better fit. It's, uh, yeah,
1: well, it's, it's wholly away from the limelight, isn't it?
2: This is going to make me sound very uh, uppity, but there, there was, of course, I think, a concern when I first began writing it that because there is a lightness to the project, there is, a in some areas, some deliberate silliness about the story. I guess... I and we were worried that maybe it wouldn't be taken too seriously by the kinds of calibres of actors that we wanted to approach, frankly. And even though we had Stephen Frears on board, I, I was always worried that people, that what I had written wasn't communicating in a script to the reader the sort of enormity of this story and actually the real emotional heart of what I think is at the essence of what these characters went through. So it's just a relief. It's just a sheer relief, would you think, few you when, when actors of that calibre come back and they can see the potential for it to be more than the sum of its parts, that it can say something bigger about this culture, that industry, this trial, this story, Britishness, class. It's a huge relief and you, of course, feel a very small sense of validation after months and months of insecurity.
0: Well, it's such a rare thing in TV to ever be able to get your top choice of actors. Uh, not only you know because of how in demand the the best actors are, but also because of availability and the challenges that that can bring. But we were incredibly lucky, and of course, it's testament to James's wonderful script, and of course to you know the actors wanting to work with Stephen Frears, um, as well as people wanting to revisit you know this story that we all remember from twenty or so years ago. But we yeah we we always had Michael Sheen was our was very much our dream choice for Tarrant given his history you know uh, this extraordinary character transformations and both Stephen Frears and Andy Harris had worked with uh, Michael before on The Queen brilliant feature film that uh, where he played Tony Blair um so there was already a bit of history and sort of those relationships existed similarly with uh, Matthew Mcfadden as well we all fell in love with him as i think uh, most people have done in uh, as Tom Shivs, rather put upon husband in Succession, brilliant Jesse Armstrong series, and so we thought he could be perfect. And similarly, it was actually one of our junior script editors who had. You know, a wave of uh, inspiration and suggested Sean Clifford while we were sort of brainstorming names for Diana, and we all just leapt out of our seats and and just thought, wouldn't she be perfect? And the second series of Fleabag had just aired around that time, actually, so we'd all fallen in love with her for a second time. And again, you know, we just struck gold. She she immediately really responded to to the script and and was dying to work with Stephen. So we feel hugely privileged to have been able to bag, such a stellar cast
4: My name is Julie Kendrick and I'm the makeup and hair designer of Quiz It was quite scary trying to recreate Chris Tarrant and I did have belly wobbles about it but also then when you were doing it when we were actually doing it Sometimes when I walked around to the side of him, when I was putting his wig on or, or styling the wig at the back or the side, I would completely believe it was Chris Tarrant and I would forget completely that it was Michael. The first meeting I had with him was in um, a hotel in West London in Shepherd's Bush. I also got Chris Lyons along who is, he owns Fangs Effects, which is making teeth because Chris Tarrant actually has a slightly offset centrepiece in his teeth. If you look at him very closely, it's slightly off to the side. So we were going to, in fact, we did make some teeth in order to do that. And maybe that would have helped Michael change his jaw slightly. Uh, And so initially when I met Michael, it was trying on a wig, a blonde wig. It was talking to him about what we were going to do, whether we're going to use prosthetics or not. He really didn't want to use prosthetics at all. So it was just talking through what it is that we could do. And so we decided on making some teeth that he could try and and but but i wouldn't push him into using those or not it was that was his choice because also it can change your speech pattern a little bit we were definitely going to always have a wig we put a little bit of tan on i added a little mole on his chin i bleached his eyebrows completely and then added a little bit of shading. We did have to put a bald cap on, in order for his hairline to go a little bit farther back, and also because Michael has such strong, beautiful, dark, curly hair, we had to we had to hide that completely. The first morning we allowed two hours. I mean, I had two hours in the test, and that was really working everything out. And and we worked out that, that Michael did not want to use the teeth because he said he looked like a sexy vicar. <laughs> which was quite funny, Um, and he did, really, actually, so maybe he'll play a sexy vicar at some point and use those teeth. But we didn't go with them for Chris, so he just had his own teeth.
2: Oh, dear. Yeah, I'm going to have to phone a friend. It's that's what the lifelines are there for. Uh, OK, who are we going to call, Major? Uh, Gerald.
4: So Matthew, we did, I met him on the same day that I met Michael, and again, I made him some false teeth. Charles Ingram's got a, quite a gap between his teeth, so and and that was, for me, quite a specific thing, um, a personality trait. I also thought it might help Matthew with, with changing his voice a little bit. So I offered that up to Matthew and said, is it something that you'd be interested in doing? And he said, yes. Because all actors love things like that, uh, so we got him some teeth made, and he tried them, and he loved them. In fact, there was two. There was two sets made. One was very, very gappy, and the other one was was mildly gappy. And we went with mildly gappy because the other ones, again, it just made for a, a vicar, a, a more a posh vicar. So there was a there was a there's a lot of religion being being thrown around there. So we gave him teeth, and then we talked about maybe using a bold pate section on him because charles was quite thinning but we decided against that because it would be it would be too much within the amount of cast that we had it didn't really warrant it so instead matthew very kindly let us cut into his own hair and make it made it a lot thinner so bless him i know that the next job that he did he had little stumps of hair popping through which I knew that because I was working on that job at the same time. The makeup artist that was looking after him um, asked me why I'd cut little sections out of his hair. And my simple answer was because he let us, really. So, yeah, he's really game. Lovely, lovely man. Army Major Charles Ingram and his wife Diana arriving at court today to face the cameras. When we were filming it, and because we did lots of different sections, we did the, the ITV first, then the trial, then the quiz, and then the family. Throughout that whole time, my opinion of what happened with the Ingrams and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire kept changing. Some days I very much thought guilty other days I very much thought innocent and I still end up not really knowing. Well I remember really
0: vividly um, so on the Sunday that uh, Michael had flown in from New York I went to meet him and I walked into a trailer in a car park outside Hammersmith uh, magistrate's court, <laughs> and he was just starting to try out the voice and he was in the wig and it sent shivers down my spine honestly i i 'll never forget it it was such an extraordinary moment to to hear that character uh, and to see that character really come to life um,
1: yeah it was it was interesting wasn 't it because in in reality um, a lot of the people we've spoken to and as James um, wrote in the script that that occasion when Chris visited the court was was a big thing you know it was an exciting and and buzzy moment for everybody involved in the case that you know the star of millionaire was going to be coming to uh, to do his bit on the stand and um in an interesting parallel with that with our scheduling, we very much had that with with michael 's first day because nobody had seen him, and um, I certainly found myself trying to avoid it noticing that I was just staring at him, you know, I was just completely, <laughs> you know, sort of standing to one side, ogling at him.
2: I, I, I popped in to see Michael on that first day of his filming. He'd just come back from America and I just remember p- poking my head through the door and he was just finishing his transformation. And I sort of tried to actually play it cool because I thought I think it's the most uncool thing to in front of Michael Sheen, who was the king of transformations, Tony Blair and David Frost and now Chris Tarrant. To, um, to make a big deal out of it but I, I stepped out of it and just, I just remember I think <laughs> I probably made a kind of squeaky noise as I walked back over the car park um, knowing that it was either <laughs> well to be honest either it was completely ridiculous or completely brilliant because you don't ever quite know but with Michael he's, such a, he's, he's so the real deal with that stuff
1: Right, so this is Adrian Pollock we've seen him before it's his fourth time in the fastest finger it's fourth? Huh? Wait, what? Uh, yeah, I know something's up Whatever everyone has chosen, Brandon. And yet, there he
2: is. I think one of the most exciting things I uh, discovered when I was researching the story of, of Quiz uh, through a mixture of interviews with the real-life people, um, and we had this incredible book, a source material that came out, was published um, about three or four years ago, called Bad Show, uh, by two journalists, uh, Bob Wuffington and James Plaskett, who sort of exploded holes in the, in the perceived narratives around the Ingrams' guilt. There, there was this whole culture, which I had no idea about, and I think the majority of the people watching this drama will have no idea about, which is a relatively professionalised organisation that was born out of, um, you know, these quiz obsessives and people who just loved the show, um, who created what we call The Syndicate. Um, and yes, uh, 50-50 is absolutely true. They They called themselves, in real life, they were called The Consortium, uh, and we call them the Syndicate. And it, they were run by a guy uh, called Paddy Spooner, who we features in a character in the show. And I think it's remarkable, both because it's really exciting to watch a, um, essentially a kind of uh, resistance movement, but born out of incredibly polite, quite professional middle-class people in these quiet English villages, Uh, trying to hack into a game show. Um, But also, I think, on on a thematic level, it's symptomatic of something else. It's symptomatic of a bigger question about why it is that the British just love a quiz, why they love questions and answers, why they love getting things right. And it led, in some cases, in certain quarters of the country, to levels of obsession, which I think is quite astounding. And, in fact, researching and writing the television drama we discovered way more new information about the extent to which they operated and how successful they were in breaking into the show. So in a way, actually, this television drama is revealing for the first time to a wide audience the nature of this organisation and quite how powerful and successful they were. Who's the fastest? Adrian Pollock!
1: Well, at least he can only play the actual game once, so we'll never have to see him again.
2: How they got on was simply because they like a lot of people like the syndicate and a lot of these more organized uh, networked groups who would speak to each other while watching the show they just acknowledged and uh, recognized certain vulnerabilities and flaws in the makeup of the show. They started to realize that the as we talk about this on the program that a show would publicize uh, when the quieter moments were to call on their website they soon realized that the if you start calling in blocks rather than individual random calls, that would improve your chances. And of course, the biggest thing they discovered um, was that the closest to questions, the questions that the show call you back on and ask you to test whether or not you're going to be one of the 10 fastest finger first contestants, they realised those questions were constantly being rotated. So all you need is several dozen people around the country constantly ringing and constantly getting that call back. And you start to gather a database of all the questions that you're likely to be asked. So they would argue they were just exploiting weaknesses that were already there and improving their chances to get on the show
1: it's phenomenal isn't it <laughs> and, and actually it's interesting um james and Alice, isn't it because when we've met those characters in real life that's still very much the sentiment now certainly with with um with those that have come in to watch we, we've done a few uh screenings for those characters that we depicted and uh and that's still very much their their line that you know that they were just uh you know using what was out there they weren't doing anything wrong they were just playing they were playing the game but in a very passionate and uh, perhaps more extreme way to your average um, player of that game
2: <laughs> yeah see, you can easily see why they um they justified it whether it's uh it's like sports enhancing drugs or something isn't it if it's available you're tempted to take it i think also it's it's quite easy to in a way, kind of mock and lampoon that level of obsessiveness. And of course we do, because it's a comedy drama in essence, we do have some fun, I think, with those larger-than-life characters in the first couple of episodes. But I, in a weird kind of way, I sort of have this odd um, affection towards people like that. I think it's quite endearing to see people really, really, really care about something. And I think it also probably speaks to a wider insecurity that maybe we all have, I think I definitely have it, that any of us are only one or two steps away from getting a bit too obsessed by anything, by (laughs) going just basically a bit weird. Um, And that can be in any aspect of your life, whether it's how much coffee you drink, or whether it's how much you love uh, binging on a a television show, or how much you love a music artist. I, I think we're all capable of falling down a rabbit hole where we just lose a bit of
3: perspective. I want audio speakers inside the seat, vibrating with heavy sound, pulsating up through the contestant. Go, 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 go. Okay.
1: Next, the lights, Darker.
0: James, do you want to speak to the, the magic moment? And-
2: sure. So, you know, it's quite enjoyable for a show that is essentially about truth and, and falsehoods and correct answers and incorrect answers. Obviously, we have, uh, when you're making a show like this, you have to make some choices about what show that's real and what you are sort of using some artistic license over. So, for example, uh, there is a moment, yes, when, um, when uh, Paul Smith, the creator of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, is searching around for that title, and he uh, currently has a very very crap title, uh, which was true, which was called uh, Cash Mountain, and everyone hated it, and they couldn't think of a, the right title for the game show, and we we show um, a carpenter or electrician whistling on set to the the, to the classic high society tune and I'm afraid it's a 50-50, true or false, that that is false, <laughs> that's me, I'm really sorry, that's autistic license.
0: We've also, just to jump in, we've slightly bolstered that moment with a little bit of authenticity um, from that story as well, because we managed to track down the original track that was produced for Cash Mountain, Um, And it's called Cloud Nine And it was produced by Pete Waterman Yeah, Pete Waterman, wasn't it? That's right Pete Waterman I could sing it for you now, but I won't But we've used that in the show It's about 15 seconds or so During the filming of the pilot scene But that's just a little bit of texture that is completely authentic, and that Paul Smith shared with us. That, of course, they didn't actually use for "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire" as we know it.
3: To give you a test for sixty-four thousand oh, pounds.
1: Come on! Why not taking off yet? Where's the bloody tank? It's fine. It's
0: fine, Paul. It just needs bedding in. You know,
2: patient. I remember when I. First saw Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was the episode that we show. And the second contestant was this woman called Rachel DaCosta who, who we used the real footage for. And I think the reason why that... I, I wrote that into the, the script and, I, and discussed it with Dan and Alice and casting. And the reason I just felt so strongly about it, I think, is because I remember, I remember sat home watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire launch. I was sat with my grandparents watching a new game show. Um, and... <laughs> And as, we, as this sort of, we tell in the first episode, the, the first contestant was fine, but nothing extraordinary. But of course, Paul Smith and the creators had built this mechanism to create the most amount of impossible nail-biting tension and human drama. And it hadn't come yet. And then along comes the second contestant, Rachel DeCosta. And the impact that that moment had on me, I just remember it to this day. I remember watching her go through these emotions She was the very first Phone A Friend contestant. She called her dad. She wanted to get married. She didn't know the answer. And she begs her dad to help her. And she starts to cry. And I probably at least had a lip wobble, if not full on tears coming out of my eyes when I first watched that. Just to watch her go through, just to watch it matter so much to her. Let's see who got there quickest. The next fastest finger is Rachel DaCosta. So Rachel, what would you do if you won a million pounds? I would... Clear
0: all mine and my fiancé's debts. Sort out our business, buy a house
2: and get married. Oh, well, you oh. can get married tomorrow morning,
4: The business isn't in a situation where we could do it at the moment. God bless her.
2: Well, uh, you are only 15 questions away from winning £1 million. Yes, so insane. let's play. Just insane. And it wasn't even really about the money, it was about something else. It was about about wanting something, about proving something, about what is possible and what is not possible in your life. And... And it just felt so, I just, we, I, you know, we could have maybe found someone to replicate it and do a good impression. But I think given that a, a huge part of episode one, in those opening scenes, when we're seeing the producers come up with the DNA of this game show, this game show that would surprise everybody by going on to be the most well-sold format around the world, reminding an audience what about it was so extraordinary at the time. So simple, questions and answers just questions and quizzes and yet so impactful so meaningful and remarkable using the right footage just felt completely right and very important to me how you then do that I've got no idea again it goes back to I just type that in my script (laughs) and I hand that over to Alice and Dan Mm -hmm. Uh, and the feat of achieving that both in terms of production design on the day how you angle the cameras what you need um, in terms of set and then of course what Pia has done our editor so remarkably is to weave in the original footage from 1998, with footage we shot in 2019 with Michael, and make it seem as seamless as possible.
3: I'm uh, Pia Chaula. I'm the film and music editor on Quiz, and this is how we achieved it. The Rachel DeCosta sequence was shot in different locations. So we had the Ingrams watching the show off their television set, then we had the control room that had um, around eight monitors, and so I had to insert images in every single monitor. Uh, they were shot blank so that a blank canvas so that I could put whatever we wanted in those monitors so I would put Rachel in one I would put. Michael Sheen in another one. We had all the original graphics from ITV, so I would put a graphic in one monitor. Um, I would put put Rachel's fiancé in another monitor. I would put a wide shot from the original show. So that, I mean, the makeup and everything was so great on, on Michael Sheen that you wouldn't know it wasn't Chris. I had all the archive from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And um, the concept of the show was that until our characters come into the studio, all the other contestants had to be shown on a monitor. So trying to achieve emotion from people on monitors was very challenging. But um, I asked Steven to give me extreme close-ups of monitors so that Although we get a bit of the TV, it's I could blow up Rachel's face to get the most emotion possible.
2: Uh, the next voice you hear will be Rachel's. Rachel, talk to your dad.
0: Which English county has a border with only one other? Devon, Norfolk, Cornwall or Kent? I
2: have no idea. No.
3: Now, Rachel DeCosta was a turning point for the show. It started as a game show, but since everyone connected to Rachel, it transcended the game, it became more personal, so the audience connected with her and sympathized with her dreams. I had the archive material, and I had our current material. I had to take Chris Tarrant out, I had to replace it with Michael Sheen, which meant that I couldn't cut where I normally would, So this was a major challenge. I also had 10 monitors in the control room to find material for. I used archive material. Chris Tarrant is in some of the wide shots. And as a little joke, I even left some of the dialogue from Chris Tarrant. And no one noticed. They will assume it's Michael Sheen. Because I planted a few of these lines. And then I told Stephen, and he laughed about it, And I don't think the producers know, but don't tell them. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that's what it's like to blend archive with our production material.
0: Pia, I have to say, Pia (laughs) did fess up to me on her very last day in the cutting rooms. So I was aware, but having watched it, maybe...
2: I am going to watch it as soon as we finish talking. so
0: sorry, James. I must have watched it, I mean, maybe... Maybe 40 times. Um, and to not have noticed that is, is quite extraordinary, I think. It's,
2: uh, it is, but yeah, it's just testament to Michael, isn't it? A testament to Pierre to be able to, to, to weave all that together.
0: And whilst it's not all about mimicking Tarrant and, you know, doing a Tarrant, it's so much more than that. It's just, it's so impressive, isn't it? That we were unable to, over probably about 40 watches, discern the difference between the Chris Tarrant audio and, uh, and, and Michael Sheen. Amazing.
1: I can't resist one other anecdote, actually, about the whole Michael on, on set on that that um, South Court Day. Alice, do you remember the there was there was a there's a scene where Paul Smith is meeting Chris to kind of you know talk him into coming and joining Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And uh, that scene takes place in a restaurant that overlooks Tower Bridge. Was the location that we we chose in it? In in reality, it wasn't that restaurant, but we felt that was I'm um, going to be great to show off London and and you know really give us something visual to look at in the background. And on, on the day of shooting, um, what we hadn't realised was that the round-the-world yacht race also happened to be kicking off that same day. <laughs> right outside that restaurant, on the opposite side um, of the river, there were, like, you know, speakers, there were helicopters, weren't there, Alice? Do you remember? I
0: think it was a 50-boat flotilla, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's
1: the one. Yeah, just a small number, a small fleet.
0: And then the draw bri- the bridge kept, be- kept <laughs> yeah, going up right, and down. Yeah. There were helicopters. There were scores of families shouting for their loved ones who were about to do this round. People put banners world, up. Weren't weren't they do you
1: remember the banners right in the back of shot where Michael was sat, and um, and so every time, every time we went for a take, these hordes of people had to be funneled through past where Michael and. And Mark Bonner played Paul Smith. was was sat at this table, and it was just really funny watching the reaction of people, sort of double taking as they were walking past, just you know seeing Michael sat there with his uh, with his cigar and his blonde wig on, <laughs> looking very very Chris Tarrant, very regal. <laughs> a
2: million quid, my God! Not if you, Chris Tarrant, agree to present the show, a guaranteed hit. So, like like a lot of the characters in the show, I. I, I... I'd never really bothered to interrogate why it was. I just loved watching uh, quizzes and game shows going up. Um, but I did. I remember I was I was quietly obsessed. I was a very geeky young kid who would rather be sat at home watching television game shows than than hanging out with friends. Um, so I don't know, Alice and Dan. I don't think we've ever talked about this, but uh, in the, in classic. Who wants to be a millionaire? Style. I have a multiple choice question for you. Uh, which game show was I once obsessed with trying to get on? Was it Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, The Price is Right, Play Your Cards Right, or Bullseye? How well do you know me?
0: This I I, I... you go down. What do you think? Do You
1: know, I think it would be. Well, I, I'm I'm doing a chat. I'm I'm thinking like Charles Ingram would think and I'm going through process of elimination I think C do we
0: get do we get lifelines or
1: <laughs> play your cards right
0: <laughs> okay if you go for C Dan then I'm gonna go for B the price is right
2: uh, why, why are you making your choices what about me it makes you think those answers well I think if it was A
1: I think, you, we'd, have, I think we'd have spoken about it more if, if you'd made effort to get on who wants to be a millionaire
2: that's oh yeah good logic good logic yeah Okay, well, the clocks went out, so I'm gonna tell you what it is. Uh, The answer is B, the price is right. Oh! well done, Alex. <laughs> uh,
0: I could just Very imagine fierce. you being really spellbound by it after school, sitting on your sofa. Well, semester. actually,
2: my yeah. I, just, I, I think it was just the theatrical nature of it, the, yeah. the, the not know you, you're in that audience of 100 people, you're not sure whether you're going to get picked, <laughs> and then the whole running down the steps, waving, and having to guess what things. I just absolutely loved it. And actually, my dad, I remember, because it was filmed um, quite near me at Central TV Station in Nottingham, uh, and my dad who lived nearby with us he um he managed to get on one time and i just i was overwhelmed by excitement i couldn't believe it it's um it just felt really glamorous it felt really starry and uh, and this was the age in you know it was the sort of 80s and early 90s when everything was about stuff and about glamour about everything was so american and um it was often also about i guess greed and that's why uh it was about winning stuff and and making you know making Pimping up your house, but yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved it.
0: So you're also from a family of quiz obsessives.
2: <laughs> yeah, we, who knew? We obviously, we, we never cheated or <laughs> did anything like that. But um, <laughs> this but, but is was, the story was, you were everyone? born to
0: tell, James. Clearly,
2: I think so. Now it's my time. <laughs> it is interesting
1: looking at those shows, though, isn't it? Because it that that in itself um, really highlights what what was done with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and how how bold and how different and how dramatic. It was, and the interesting parallel between you know us making a drama, James writing his um, fantastic script about this game show that was all about creating as much drama as they possibly could, um, and I think the the knowingness that Charles and Diana and the Ingrams had about understanding the drama that was that was created by the the, the program makers was really admirable. Actually, you know they understood that, and um, you know when we spoke to Chris Tarrant along the way as well, and Chris was so incredibly proud of everything that he and Paul Smith and they, what they did to create this really dramatic and different and boldly different show. And then to have those such as Charles Ingram, who were avid fans, come along and understand what it was the producers were, were after. There was a wonderful line in the show, isn't there, that uh, Charles is explaining, you know, it's what the producers want, that's what the producers are looking for, um, the drama that's being created on screen.
2: The driving factor behind beginning to even think about writing a play and then a TV drama about this story was—it's an obvious thing to say. It's an easy—it's an easy one hundred pound question. But it's the story. It's just um, in and of itself watching um, this very ordinary family go through such an extraordinary thing.
0: But our approach has been to be incredibly sensitive and mindful um, that, you know, this this story is quite painful for a lot of the people um, who lived through it. So we wanted to make sure that we approached all of our conversations uh, with sensitivity, but also with balance, you know. So we spoke to people on every side of the story, you know, be it the Ingrams, um, be it on the ITV side, those who were working for Celador or um, and the lawyers on the prosecution and on the defence, we wanted to make sure that you know we really had been thorough in our approaches to the people who were involved in this story and we'd kind of heard every different take.
1: Well I think the most striking thing for me when we met the Ingrams, um, they they did a set visit um, towards the end of filming, came and spent some time with us and it's interesting because for them, while it, it was obviously you know 20 years ago, they talk about it as if it could have happened yesterday. It's affected their lives in such a way that they've never really um, been able to break away from much of the impact of it.
0: Army Major Charles Ingram and his wife, Diana, arriving at court today to face the cameras. Inside, Ingram is to hear claims that he teamed up with a coughing accomplice, alleged to be college lecturer, Tekken Whitton, to cheat his way to the one million pound jackpot on ITV's hit quiz show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Final Answer is produced by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative.